Hello everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode of The Meaning of Health. In this episode, we have a conversation with an expert on LGBTQIA plus issues. Kai Schweizer is from the Youth Affairs Council of Western Australia, where he delivers training to workers providing services to young people as part of his role in the Youth Educating Peers program. He is also involved in the Youth Pride Network, where he advocates for societal change to improve things for the LGBTQIA community. He has a great deal of knowledge about queer issues, and we chat extensively about the types of challenges that transgender people in particular currently face, just living their lives day to day. Kai is also currently completing a Master's in Sexology, an area that he explains in more detail during our chat. Courtney and I both found our conversation with Kai very enlightening, and we hope you enjoy it too. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of The Meaning of Health. My name's Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we're very pleased to be able to introduce Kai from Yakwe today. Hello. Hi, Kai. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, now, Kai, do you want to me. tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you're doing and your background? Oh, goodness, where to start? Um, yeah, so my background is mostly in, well, my undergraduate was in creative writing, so a lot of writing and using writing to make change. Um, and then my postgrad at the moment, my master's is in sexology, which sounds a lot dirtier than it is. <laughs> um, people assume that like my job is like doing sex. It's not. It's teaching about and researching and understanding the human body and the human psyche. Um, but mostly I, at the moment, teach sexual health education to young people, so 12 to 26, um, okay. which is pretty cool. Um, so I get to do that via the, the Youth Affairs Council of Western Australia, thanks to the Department of Health for funding this very cool project, <laughs> which is a plot twist. Um, yeah, so that's my main, my main job there. Um, and then I also am one of the co-founders of the Youth Pride Network, which runs out of the Youth Affairs Council, which is sort of a very large advocacy body of young people from the LGBTIQA plus community, um, trying to make things better for all of us who still have quite a lot of barriers to basic well-being in Western Australia. Yeah. Um, and just trying to build community amongst people who may be under 18 because all of the opportunities to connect to community generally exist in bar spaces, yeah. which excludes people under the age of 18 mm-hmm. or those who don't want to be in those spaces. So last weekend we ran Queer D&D, which was just oh my gosh, 50, that's amazing. Yeah, 50 <laughs> young people learning how to play D&D, all of which were very shy, nerdy, queer people who weren't interested in you know the sort of bar club environments. It's okay. very fun. So that acronym, LGBTQIA+, yep. so that seems to be ever-expanding, and I know some of the people listening won't know what each of those letters stands for. They'll know the first, probably four or five. Yeah. Do you just want to give us a bit of a rundown? Yeah, so I know it seems like an ever-growing acronym, but it hasn't actually grown in quite a long time now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, not as ever expanding as it can feel to people who maybe are out of like the, mm-hmm. the community and not seeing that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, LGBT is the bit most people still kind of are familiar with. L, lesbian, G, gay, B, bisexual, T, transgender. Uh, and then people get a little bit lost after that. The I is intersex. Um, Q is queer and questioning. And A is asexual. And then the plus just acknowledges there's probably a lot more letters out there. But if we add a lot more letters, then we will never stop talking of course there'll be 
speaking another language entirely. So yeah, so it, it kind of feels like the group is just. It, it could include everyone, to be honest. I feel like, and it, that's such a good thing about it is that you can feel a part of that um, if you are, I guess, anything other than straight as well. So questioning all that sort of stuff, that sounds really good. Yeah. 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 I think the Q is a, a very important letter. In Absolutely. That. In terms of statistics around mental health, the people who are most vulnerable are the people who aren't sure where they fit yet. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who haven't told anyone or come out yet are the yeah. ones who are most at risk of suicide. Um, and so making sure people understand that you are still a part of a community and can explore your identity without knowing exactly where you fit yet is quite important. Yeah, okay. Now, I did take an accent, Kai, but whereabouts is that accent? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I have a very strange muddled American-Australian accent that people think is probably Canadian. Um, never been to Canada. Um, but yeah, I was born in the United States and I've traveled most of my life with a military family, um, and have settled in Australia for the past 13 years. So you'd think the accent would have faded by now, but no. Yeah. So it's an international American accent. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) International student accent, they call it apparently, even though I've never been to an international school. Yeah. Okay. Now, what prompted you to get involved in the sort of work that you're doing and the, the places that you work for now or work at now? I guess um, I've had a very interesting life in a lot of ways, and especially whilst living in Western Australia for the past, you know, large chunk of a decade, I've discovered a lot of barriers and challenges that people in the, you know, the LGBTIQA plus community face and that young people broadly face. Um, And so I was trying to find a way to mesh my my work and my studies and my career into something that I was already doing for free anyway trying to make change Mm -hmm. um and you know that sort of saying that like if you find something you care about you'll never work a day in your life is a little bit false because there's (laughs) always bad bits and Mm -hmm. not fun bits but Mm -hmm. it's amazing to kind of realize that my job is the stuff that I would be doing anyway if it wasn't my job it's just nice that I can put those things together um Yeah, so I guess, you know, being a a trans person myself and a queer person, I have kind of firsthand experienced a lot of the discrimination that exists. We still have laws in Australia and in Western Australia that allow heaps of discrimination to occur um, without a specific piece of paper to prove that you're trans. You're open slather for discrimination in most areas in WA, so employment, healthcare. Um, yeah, they've, it's a very old hang-up from the 80s that they've just never adapted or in, like, they've never, you know, re-looked at this document and thought maybe it's a bit old and outdated now because um, it's, a, you know, anything to do with our community is seen sort of controversial politically to touch. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's a bit of a bummer. We have a lot of issues with homelessness, lots of young people, especially trans young people, not being housed or being refused to be housed in homeless shelters. Um you know, the, the broader religious discrimination debate that's happening right now is already happening in WA. We already have laws that state that accommodation provided by a religious body, including shelters that are funded by a religious body, are allowed to discriminate against anyone of any background um, in terms of choosing who they house and don't house. Which mm-hmm. just sounds a bit ridiculous, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of sounds like we go back to the some of the cases that happened in Tasmania in the 80s and 90s where homosexuality mm. was still deemed to be illegal and you could get prosecuted for it. And it seems like 
that's where we are with trans issues yeah. right now. Yeah. The legislation isn't flexible enough to deal with the fact that this is an area that people are becoming more aware of and, you know, it's a population that has been recognised. And you mm. know, So does some of your work deal with trying to make that policy change? Yeah, so within the, the Youth Pride Network, um, we have a variety of different like teams of young people that work on different issues. I'm in the policy team, yeah. so all that we do is submissions to government and meeting with politicians and thinking about the broader sort of policy change that needs mm. to be made. Part of it is, you know, we need to be holding events and creating a better, stronger sense of community um, because that's that's really important as well that young people aren't just, you know, all the funding in the queer space, there is a very small amount of it to begin with, but what does exist is really focused on suicide prevention mm -hmm. and intervention. Mm -hmm. um, so it's suicide hotlines and dealing with issues of suicide. But what that leaves is all this stuff up to that that isn't dealt with. So, um, you know, it's... Once someone's already depressed, then we can help them as a queer person. But until that point, there's none of that sort of trying to help someone thrive instead of just survive. Um, and so we've been spending a lot of time trying to build up that, you know, fun stuff that is about connecting with community. But that's hard to do when there's still so many barriers to just existing. Um, so that policy side of things becomes really important in trying to fight for basic rights to attend school and to go to university and to work and find a job in any field that you want, things that should be common sense and commonplace for everybody but still just aren't. Um, so yeah, we've, we've submitted to a variety of the Law Reform Commission um, submissions that have been opened um, and we've tried to follow up on those but due to the fact that there's an upcoming election, mm. nothing's <laughs> going to get done until probably after that yeah. if things go in the right sort of direction for us um yeah. but we'll see cool. yeah just yeah. waiting around really um yeah. all things in in politics take an extremely long time i've been working for probably seven or eight years now and trying to get a single line removed from our equal opportunity act and it still hasn't happened yet <laughs> so right. but before i die someday hopefully of old age <laughs> that line will disappear that line will be gone and that's i will have completed all of my goals in life yeah. if that happens you know yeah. aside from you know like run a marathon bucket list yeah. stuff that's on the bucket list is just get that, get that line, line. Right. and so is that, is that a commonwealth act rather than a, a wa act that one's the western australian equal that's, opportunity okay. act okay. yeah okay. so um if you go onto like the equal opportunity website um, and try to submit a complaint for discrimination. Every other kind of discrimination, you just tick what it is. Mm -hmm. So if it's based on sex, if it's based on pregnancy or breastfeeding, you just tick it and then you can write what your complaint is. If your complaint is related to being a trans person, um, it, uh, it calls that gender history. Um, okay. And next to that word, gender history, is brackets, please attach certificate. And you oh. need to have gone to like multiple doctors and had a court appearance and all these other things to prove that you are really trans. And then once you've got that, then you can submit a complaint. But it won't. It will ping and bounce that complaint until you attach the certificate. You don't need to attach a certificate to say that you were breastfeeding. Um, <laughs> or that, like, Could you imagine that? Yeah. Please oh my gosh. provide three yeah. doctor's letters to confirm that you, you have breastfeeding. been breastfeeding. Photographic evidence. Yeah. 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 Um, and very, very few people choose to go through the process of getting the certificate because okay. it's just such a, a strange and invasive mm. procedure um, of yeah. like, you know, legal nonsense to kind of have to appear in court and say, I am who I say I am and have all these people... Um, you know, kind of hearing at you and yeah. interrogating you. And the people that I know who have done it said it was the most unpleasant thing in their entire life to okay. kind of just have someone 
it's like being on the stand and like having someone, you know, a defense lawyer, like grill you to try and catch you out. Mm. Um, so I still don't have the piece of paper Yeah, <laughs> and I'm very lucky to work in workplaces where legally, technically I could be fired at any time if they yeah. wanted to. Um, but I feel like, you know, within working in human rights organizations, that would be very counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, so I feel very lucky. What they're mm. existing. Yeah. Now, now, a couple of words come up there, sex and gender. Yeah. Now, there, there is a difference between those two things. A lot of people obviously use them interchangeably, but what is the difference? Yeah, it's, it's very complicated, and I will try to simplify, but as my sexology brain is like, there's so much genetics here. Yeah. Um, sex is about biology. It is sort of this innumerable thing that we cannot technically change, but we technically can, yes. um, in that like we think, of, we think of sex as being like, there's chromosomes, there's XY and XX, okay. but... Um, that's like one tiny chunk of the picture. So, you know, chromosomes are made up of very tightly wound DNA, like double helixes, you mm -hmm. know, like you see the pictures of them. Mm -hmm. um, and the, there's so many genes on there. And, you know, we have quite a number of chromosomes that make up our genetic makeup, not just two. Um, and so each, many of them have different like sex markers on them, not just, the, but the main stuff is on the X and Y. Um, but, even within that, there's still variation that some people don't have an XY or an XX, um, and that's what the I is all about, intersex, um, that some people have different variations in their chromosomes or other sex characteristics, and that's very common, very normal, and I've read stats up to 1 in 40 people who don't fit neatly into those categories. Um, if I'm thinking about sort of like four main sections of biological sex, because there's so many, um, <laughs> chromosomes are part of that. Yeah. People's genitals are a part of that as well, um, in terms of what we think of as making up sex. People's internal organs, so their testes or ovaries, which are often not the same as their genitals on the outside. Right. Um, and people's hormones as well. Yeah. So those things make up our understanding of biological sex. But when a baby is born, doctors look at one out of those four things and they go, it's a boy or it's, it's a girl, based okay. on genitals. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that... that best so guess wrong. is not correct yeah. um, okay. and people grow up their entire lives not knowing that maybe their chromosomes are different to their genitals um, so sex is really complicated mm -hmm. um, and most people don't know their biological sex okay. the only reason I do is because I went and got all my bits tested yeah. right. all my bits that sounds good um, <laughs> I went and got my chromosomes tested yeah. to see what they were and I had hormone tests which most people who are trans have to have their hormones tested before they can get yeah. new ones yeah. um, and have had ultrasounds and know what's inside and outside yeah. um, and know that I'm not an intersex person. Um, but I know a lot of people who've discovered that they are. Um, That's really interesting. So I guess we curious. wouldn't have any idea. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've never had any of those tests. Yeah. So. And there's this idea that our sense of gender and sex is the same because, like, we all think that we know we're a man or a woman based on having these genitals and we're this biological sex. But when you think about it, none of us actually, well, very few people know their biological sex. Mm. And if you found out tomorrow that your biological sex is not what you thought, would you completely alter and change your life and be like, mm. nope, I guess mm. I've Now I've got to follow this pathway instead. Yeah, yeah, because our sense of self doesn't seem to come from our biological sex at yeah. all. Like our sense of self tends to align with our biological sex, but doesn't seem doesn't to always. To. Yeah. And from what we can see so far in the sexological field, some people think that um, from MRIs of the brain that there's something in the brain that creates sense of self identity comes from in the brain, not the body itself, you know? Um, 
Yeah, so it's, it's very complicated, but for someone who like me who's biological sex and gender don't match, it's very apparent that what I feel is not what the the doctor said I yeah, was. When you, you were know? born, yeah. Yeah, the doctor yeah. went, it's a girl, based yeah. on one chunk of the data. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, very quickly it was very apparent that that was not correct. Not the um, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's really complicated. But even within people whose biological sex does fit more neatly to one side or the other, if we imagine it as like a spectrum, yeah. um, everyone has kind of like sits along a, a curve mm -hmm. really no two people have identically biological sexes which is why like if you ever had your hormones tested you have a normal range not one number right. mm -hmm. genitals all look a little bit different because all of our biological sexes are a little bit different mm -hmm. um our you know our internal organs we, we're not going around looking at them but they are they are <laughs> slightly varied as well yeah um yeah and our chromosomes again our dna our dna is varied to some extent, uniquely to us, mm -hmm. like our fingerprints. Of course. Um, yeah. so, so it's really complicated. Yeah. And so our gender could be just as, it can be just as like varied in how we live our lives and understand ourselves as our sex is. We just mm -hmm. think of them as being like, there's two options, pick one. Yeah. Um, and that's what I was just about to ask is in terms, so we've covered kind of the biological sex, which of course is very, very complicated. Um, but then gender itself, the way that I see it is it's it's what you identify as and in reality that could be anything at all. It's, is that right? Yeah, so um, this idea that we only have like two genders is yeah, a very... Girls. It's a very uniquely Western idea mm -hmm. um, and something that we've done a lot of work on in studies um, is just mapping historically how like colonization has kind of changed over time various places in the world to into this idea of two genders. So... If you map, there's maps online um, of like the whole globe and they've pinpointed everywhere that has at least three or more genders recognized right. in cultures um, outside of the Western world and pretty much everywhere that you can map has at least three, mm -hmm. five, seven, there's a lot. Yeah, okay. um, and this, yeah, this idea that there's man and woman is very much sort of like a, a Christianity-based mission colonization thing that has happened. So, like, if you look at India, for example, they have at least three genders recognized in India and Pakistan and Southeast Asia. You've got men, women, and hijra. Hijra are, like, a, a recognized third gender in India. Like, you can have hijra on your birth certificate um, or your gender identity documents and whatnot. Um, and that's female-identifying people who are assigned male at birth um, and who are seen as a third gender in the culture. Um and their job is sort of like they, they get to bless babies. And if you're blessed by Hydra, you're set for life. And they're involved in a lot of ceremonial practices as sort of like this, you know, this put on a pedestal almost yeah. thing. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very cool that like in other places, in the world that I'm growing up in, in the Western world as a trans person, it's like a really, it's seen as this really bad thing to be. But in a lot of places in the world, historically, it was seen as this really amazing thing to be that like you were the spiritual leaders of, of your culture. Yeah. Um, and so it's really varied. I think um, most Native American cultures rec re recognize at least four or five genders. Um, yeah, it just depends on where you are. But like, particularly mm. with India and Pakistan, with British colonization of India, um, you can sort of map the slow like lowering in uh, respect for Hydra people over time. Mm. And then as uh, India has decolonized, sort of this slightly uptick in okay. terms of respect as well. So, yeah, it's really exciting to see as the world sort of moves forward what's going to happen next. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned something there about birth certificates and how that was reflected on their birth certificates. And I know that's an issue that's come up in Australia with people wanting to have their birth certificate changed from their birth sex 
or their yeah. gender to to the gender that they believe or feel that they are. Yeah. And is that something you, your work kind of intersects with? Um, we have made submissions in the past around birth certificate reform, um, but it was the news picked it up very quickly and made it very controversial for reasons that I can't entirely understand. That they the law reform commission recommended to government that in Western Australia at least gender should be optional on birth certificates. Okay. So um, you know people can remove it from their birth certificate, or parents when they are, have a newborn can choose whether they would like to have it on there or not. Um, and that's really, to me, a really good thing because on the one hand, as a trans person, I could pick to not have it on there at all, and that would mean that it would extend where I could travel in the world, you know, because having a birth certificate that doesn't match or that confuses people can limit where, where in the world I can go. Yeah. Um, for intersex people, it's a really cool thing to not have to choose one or the other um, because a lot of that, at least in my experience of working with intersex people in Western Australia, is when a baby's born, if their biological sex is not neatly and clearly defined, there's a lot of pressure from doctors um, to pick a sex, right. pick one or the other. And Which often, doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, babies are so small that you don't know what their hormones are yet. Yeah. You don't know like what's going on internally. There's a lot of guessing work that goes into that. Um, and it can be really scary for parents to have to feel like they're making a really life-altering decision in a really short time frame. And you've really only got a couple of days to weeks to pick a sex to put on a birth certificate. Um, yeah, and so if it was optional, that would mean that they could either pick something or not pick something, and mm -hmm. that would hopefully take some of that pressure off parents. Um, because right now the biggest issue... One of the biggest issues that the queer community faces is unnecessary medical surgery on intersex children, yeah. um, which continues to be a massive, horrifying human rights abuse that doesn't get talked about. Yeah. Everyone's angry about the idea that trans kids are having surgery when trans kids are not having surgery legally. It's 16 is the absolute earliest anywhere in the world. In yeah. Australia, it's 18. You have to be 18 years old, very rarely 17 years old with both parents consent plus a doctor and plus a possibly a court proceeding um, to have life-altering medical stuff done. But intersex kids, that's fine. You can have surgery <laughs> when you're a month old right. um, that alters your body and no right. one's upset about that. Um, the news is all, three-year-old has sex change. Yeah. Um, but what they mean is three-year-old goes to school with a different name. Yeah. Um, nothing you know, irreversible about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's not the same level of outrage about uh, like intersex issues yet, which yeah. are horrendously horrifying. And most of the time, when intersex kids have surgery performed on them when they're teeny tiny infants, it causes lifelong complications mm -hmm. because you're working in such a tiny area yeah. um, that yeah. surgery becomes incredibly risky. Are you familiar with the South African runner, uh, Tasmania? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that her case is interesting because yeah. she's been banned from. Yeah. Uh, competing in female events, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's your What's your perspective on that? Because I think everyone probably, who at least has followed the story, probably has a has a perspective or an idea about that. So, what? Yeah. How do you feel about that? I guess. I guess the the first thing to clarify is that Castor Semenya is intersex, not trans, because yeah. a lot of people think that she's a trans woman, so someone assigned male at birth competing in the women's category. Right. She was assigned 
female at birth. Mm-hmm. Um, she had no idea that she was intersex until she'd already been competing for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what I understand, she has a variation in which her body produces more testosterone than the average person. So hyperandrogenism. Mm-hmm. Um, and her, there's lots of athletes, particularly from, from parts of Africa where hyperandrogenism is really prevalent, um, who have competed and who've been um, encouraged to take you know, blockers to reduce their testosterone. Yeah. And then they've been allowed to compete, which is the same rules that they place on trans women, even though their bodies are completely different. Um, for Casta Semenya, the controversy around her is that she refuses to take the, the things, the the reduction drugs, I've forgotten the word, but they're the testosterone blockers. Um, And her argument is, my body is naturally like this. Um, It's like a superpower. Why can't I compete with it? And a lot of people kind of have been comparing that to, you know, Michael Phelps' body is superhuman. He Mm -hmm. has the ability to, he doesn't like produce lactic acid apparently. Right. Um, And instead of having to take drugs to reduce his lactic acid or increase his lactic acid, he's allowed to compete because it's just like this natural advantage. Yeah. And Castro Semenya's argument is, yeah, I'm a woman who produces more testosterone than typical, but what a cool natural advantage to have. Why can't I compete with it? Um, And it seems like a strange a lot of people are attributing it to issues around racism and sexism that yeah. Michael Phelps, a white American, is able to compete without any issues. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be that really the Olympic Committee is targeting black women. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they're testing a lot more black women than anyone else to right. think, to check yeah, if they sad. have this. Completely yeah. randomly, though, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. completely <laughs> randomly. In quotation marks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Casta Semenya has really been fighting to try and prove that she should have the right to compete as... Uh, she she mm. is you know a, a woman um, mm-hmm. who produces more testosterone than average and then uh, but technically I mean if we're looking at sports science the majority of female athletes produce above average testosterone yeah. Yeah. it's just how much more mm-hmm. um, so if you if you tested like every national Australian runner um, who's you know competing in the women's category most of them would be above the average amount. Yeah. Maybe still within what's seen as the typical range, but definitely on one end of that range. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly, like, there's a there's a hormonal component to athletic performance that already exists. It's just people are trying to figure out where the cap is on how much is too much. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's true that most athletes who compete at a high level produce less lactic acid and have all these other biological advantages in the way that they can, you know, manage oxygen and their muscular strength and whatnot. But yeah, Castro Semenya is such an interesting, um, but also really sad case of being really pushed out of sports because of something to do with her body that she has no control over. Mm. Um, And I think that's the difference. I think a lot of people think she did have control over it and made the choice, whereas in reality she 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 didn't. She did nothing except trying. Yeah, Yeah. she just got up to the highest level of sport without ever knowing that this was the case. Yeah. Um, Lots of people, like I said, who are intersex have absolutely no idea. People kind of thought that she should have known somehow and that, like, it should have been obvious to her. Um, But when it's something internal or it's hormonal, how do you know what your hormone levels are unless you've ever had them tested, you know? Yeah, it's ridiculous. She wasn't cheating in any possible way. Like, she had no idea that this was going on. Um, it's just really, yeah, sad that they were like, you are, you're a cheater. Um, and she's never made any intentional, like, attempt to, to, mm. de- to deceive anybody, yeah, you yeah. know? I mean, they, they've tested her extensively yeah. and it's just naturally how she is. She's yeah. Like, her levels don't change. That's, yeah. that's how she is. Exactly. Yeah, interesting. 
Yeah, and I think this is, it's definitely a big, it's an emerging area where like there's so much debate over intersex and trans people in sport. And mm-hmm. those are two separate discussions yeah. that get yeah. melded together and people are like, oh, Castro Semenya must be a man and blah, blah, blah. And they assume that she's a trans woman and yeah. trans women in sport is another issue entirely mm-hmm. that um, is different, but intersex people yeah. in sport is, yeah, it's, it's really messy, isn't it? I'm interested yes. to get your thoughts on trans women in sport competing in women's events when they've been born with male kind of male sex. Yeah. From what I've read in different articles in science, like I said before, most we, most cis women who are competing in women's sport um, have above average testosterone levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, trans women, when they compete in women's sport, are required to have way 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 below average testosterone so they're competing at like it's something like 10 nanoliters or i can't remember the exact dosage but Mm -hmm. the the olympic committee has very specific guidelines that are way below what any cis woman would have um and yeah their estrogen is you know I guess people don't describe it as being like possibly quite a big car but with a really small engine yeah like you know there's so much variation in women broadly that like height there's so many really tall women in basketball already you know um it doesn't make that much of a difference um but yeah i guess the the there hasn't been a lot of years of study that have found no scientific advantage and rather have found scientific disadvantage to competing as a woman in women's sport Mm -hmm. um as a trans woman that like i guess i had someone say to me a while back like if there's this like massive uh, advantage, then why have we never seen a trans woman get all the gold medals at the Olympics? Yeah. And it's because it just doesn't happen. Like right. being a trans woman as competing in the women's category, you are at a significant disadvantage because of like the way that your body is built versus the way that it is trying to function. Yeah. Um, and so there are some sports where trans women are getting to like the elite level, but are very rarely, if ever winning. Right. Um, and you know, the, it's mostly like cycling and other sports um, of that nature that seem to be popular with trans women. And I think mm-hmm. it's more to do with the fact that you're wearing a helmet and people can't identify you as easily than right. it is to do with advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's there's no evidence to suggest that there's, there's going to be this massive takeover um, yeah. because trans women have been allowed to compete in the Olympics <laughs> for quite a number of years yeah. and it's never been a thing. There's been like to my knowledge, there's been like three or four athletes who've competed under the radar that only the committee knew were trans, but like they didn't win. Yeah. Um, and we had for the first time this year uh, a trans man in the men's category uh, compete in the Olympic trials. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah. And he had to pull out because he got injured, but oh, he was no. so close. Oh, I was like, no. oh, my heroes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's there's no advantage on the other end as well to a trans man competing in men's sport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your testosterone levels are monitored and the same as everyone else is competing. You're not allowed to like dope yourself up with extra testosterone. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as you're maintaining your levels to like a, the within range. the normal range, yeah. um, then it's seen as being totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I think your work is focused on is creating awareness and education, you know, educating people who might work with trans people or who are just in the community generally um, about you know what transgender issues are or queer issues are. Yeah. And so I just wanted wanted to expound on that a little bit more and, and the sorts of groups that you that you talk to and what you what your presentations go through and some of the questions you get asked and you know. Yeah, we get asked. Uh, 
a broad range of questions and we work with a lot of different people, I guess. Mm. Um, within the YEP project, we work with anyone who engages with young people is our sort of demographic and our most booked workshop is our workshop on gender and sexuality right. which is cool i mean we we were doing sexual health of all kinds and talking about all kinds of different issues but it seems like the pressing issue for a lot of people who work with vulnerable young people right now so the, the homeless shelters that are inclusive the like regional and remote centers that are getting a lot of people with complex mental health issues they're noticing a really large number of like LGBTIQA plus young people and a lot of trans young people who are reaching out for help that they don't know how to support um, or just feel like not as equipped as they'd want to be, but they're still doing a great job. Um, and so we're, we travel out to wherever we're needed and just have a chat with them. And I guess what makes our workshops a bit different is that we really frame it in terms of like, I might be a trans person who's teaching this to you, but I'm not trying to tell you that you should feel a particular way. Um, like I'm there as a, as a sexologist and scientist, I want to give you all the stats and all the information so you can make a choice about what you think. Um, but all I can do is give you the objective research, you know? Like I can tell you that my life has sucked a lot in some ways and that I've experienced this discrimination and that that is backed up by the statistics um, and that this is what's common amongst young people and these are the things that might come up. But at the end of the day, people can leave that workshop still thinking that trans people are the devil if they want to, um, because that's their decision. And I think you get a lot more uh, out of being there if you don't come in with like an agenda to change people's minds. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you do change people's minds, but like the aim is just to, you know, I think people are so time poor, especially youth workers and people who are working with really like uh, high needs people that mm -hmm. um, they can't go and like read all the academic journals yeah. and that's just too much like to ask of people when they already are so busy um, and so if we can come in and just give them all that information um, and you know answer their really specific client questions then we're gonna get uh, hopefully some positive change from that that a lot of the information that's easy to find is really inaccurate so right. like the news reports about three-year-olds having sex changes, like if that's all the information I was receiving, I too would be outraged. Yeah. I'd be like, how dare they? Yeah. Um, but, you know, having community connections and also having read all the actual data out there, I know that that's not true. And if I even look at that same news report and actually read it in depth and go, oh, that's what you really mean, the sensationalized title means nothing anymore, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but... Yeah, and in 2020, people have so little time to themselves that there's just not enough time to even begin to think about all the things in the world that are going on. Like, it's, for me, like, I'm embedded in trans issues, but I know that there's lots of other things that I need to be aware of. Like, I'm trying to, to build my knowledge of things to do with racism because that's not my experience. And mm -hmm. my, like, knowledge of things to do with disability, because, again, that's, like, not the area that I live in, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're all trying to broaden our understanding of people with different needs and experiences yeah. um but when we're time for it, it's about like finding mm. the ways to get that information well, as quickly as possible well what do you find are the most common misconceptions or misunderstood that's the question thing? i was gonna yeah. ask <laughs> like, is there other things that keep coming out that, or that people are completely fascinated about that you that you kind of get sick of answering in a way because you're like oh that's really oh. used like i never get sick of answering questions um i don't think mm -hmm. i guess when in there's a difference between when I'm answering questions in my personal life and in my work life. Like 
when I'm in work mode, I can handle any question I get asked. When I'm in personal mode and I'm like out on a date and I'm getting the same questions yeah. and it feels a lot more draining because I'm like, I'm here to have fun, not to be in teacher mode. Yeah. But when I'm at work and I'm in teacher mode, I'm like, I will answer anything yeah. you want to know. <laughs> I'm very clear that like, there's nothing you can say that will offend me because I'd rather you ask me than a young person and completely ruin your relationship with them. Yeah. Um, I guess some of the most interesting conversations I have are often around things to do with religion. Like when I'm doing workshops with someone who's from like a faith-based service, which does happen a lot. Mm-hmm. I've done workshops with like Catholic priests before. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and that's so good. Yeah. yeah. And some of them are just like the coolest people. I'm just like <laughs> obsessed with them. Um, and yeah, just kind of like the framing and the way that people, it's, it's really healing for me as well as I think for them to like, have those dialogues where often we're in such different worlds that we're not talking to each other. And like, you know, I've had lots of experiences growing up where religion has been used to make my life really hard, like trying to access different like services and being told, no, um, we don't treat people like you here. Um, and that can be a real, like over time you build up this idea that like people from a faith base are always going to hate you. Um, or that broadly people who aren't trans are going to hate you because statistically a lot of us get murdered. Um, but, you know, when you get an opportunity to have conversations with people from faith, from different faiths, including other queer people from different faiths, because they do exist in large numbers. In Absolutely. Fact, more than half of queer people, supposedly, based on the stats, believe in some sort of faith or subscribe to some sort of faith. That um, there's not like this warring factions of queer people and religion that actually there's lots of overlap and we're not enemies trying to fight for existence. Um, it can be really like healing and interesting to have those conversations with people from a faith base who they're not at all trying to be hurtful. They just have never been exposed to these issues. Or a few of them that I've met have been like, you know, we have people who come to our church or our synagogue or our mosque who are from this community and we just don't know how to help them. So I'm here to learn. And I'm like, yes, yes it's so yeah. pleasant. Yeah. I've done workshops at like, you know, really Orthodox Jewish schools and just like left crying because I felt like so affirmed and yeah. happy. Um, I think, yeah, Judaism is like really moving towards being queer friendly very yeah. rapidly of yeah. all the oh, religions. Yeah, awesome. It's so sweet. There's, um, there's a website now called Trans Torah that has like all of the Torah passages that are affirming mm-hmm. um, and like Hebrew uh, translations of words to learn how to like speak Hebrew in a gender neutral way um, and there's like sites full of like prayers for safe binding and like becoming a woman and yeah it's really That's there's amazing. some really lovely stuff out there yeah. and there's things like that that exist for all religions now that can be really really healing as well yeah but I guess it's just the way that you frame it and understanding that science says this but you can believe whatever you want really um, but yeah. yeah some of that is the most rewarding stuff that we get to do it's just Mm. seeing the change in people's understanding um, because they've, you know, had a chance to have really open conversations. And I guess we try to get people to just ask themselves questions they haven't had time to ask before about, like, what do you think about this? Because you've mm-hmm. been too busy to even contemplate these things. Yeah. Now, our podcast is called The Meaning of Health, so we've primarily touched on health most of the time. So well, I'm interested to know a bit more about the health issues that, the LGBTIQA plus community um, are most at risk of yeah. you know, kind of experiencing it and also how your work is set up to try and reduce some of those risks and you know create a safe space for those people. Yeah, I guess um, all the letters have very different health concerns and issues. Mm-hmm. Broadly, if we're looking at the full acronym and alphabet, mental health issues are higher. 
Um, and from all the data, it's not that like being a queer person makes you sad or depressed or anxious um, automatically. It's to do with societal impact. Mm-hmm. So any person, queer or not, who's experiencing perpetual bullying, can't access health services, can't find a job because they keep getting rejected, is going to be at higher risk of depression. Mm-hmm. Like anyone who's having those things happen to them. Anyone who's homeless is higher risk of depression, you know. Um, and if you're queer and homeless and can't get into a shelter because of it and your family's rejected you and your church has rejected you, of course you're going to be at higher risk of feeling really distressed. Um, And that makes total sense. And that's where that higher risk comes from. Um, Yeah, I guess um, the the health issues are very much, um, a lot of them are mental health, but I guess physical health as well. I know more about trans health than anything else, so I might mm-hmm. focus in on that because that's yeah. my pet peeve area. Yeah, yeah that's, um, that's good. Yeah, I guess LG, LGB health and then QIA health is very broad, um, and there's lots there's lots of readings on that. Trans health less so. That's why it's like my area of future research. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, fifty percent. Some usually studies vary, but forty five to fifty five percent of trans people have attempted suicide. Um, and a lot of that is to do with lack of access to basic services, complete rejection from family and friends. You know, a lot of people have had to drop out of school because they can't go to the school they were at anymore, or their faith-based school has kicked them out. Or there's just so many, so many barriers that get in the way. And then things like gender dysphoria as well. So the mm-hmm. distress that can come from your body and your brain not matching up, mm-hmm. um, which is to do with like. You know, people not seeing you for who you are, and everywhere you go, people using the wrong words for you. It sounds trivial, but when it's ex- something you experience day in and day out, it's exhausting and it hurts mm. a lot. And I guess for for someone like myself who doesn't experience that every day, you know, we could make a mistake and we just see it as a mistake. But I, I guess for that community, it, it's constant. Yeah. You know, always have people making that mistake, and so yours would build up on it. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I guess I, when I'm working with you know staff. I'm always telling them, like, it may seem really disproportionate that you made this mistake and called someone she, but that might be the 150th time that day it's happened to them. And you just happen to be the person that kind of pushed them over the edge that day. And a lot of that is often that, like, the person that hurts them the most is the person they trust the most. So if it's a bunch of strangers and then someone they've got a rapport with, it's the person they have the rapport with that will be the hardest to cope with because it's someone you, you really care about. You know, mm-hmm. when some random person on the bus calls me she, I'm like, you what, mate? Um, <laughs> but if it's like, you know, my best friend, then I'm going to yeah. be like, oh, that really, really sucks. Um, yeah. And it's just, I guess, this pain of people not seeing you for who you are and being like, why can't you see me? Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, it gets easier. Um, but yeah, that can be a really significant factor. And that's why a lot of people choose to medically transition or socially transition or legally transition, which is the hard one. Um, They're all the hard one, actually. But that's the unpleasant one is the legal stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, not every trans person experiences dysphoria um, and everyone experiences it in a different way, but it can be a very distressing thing for a lot of people to cope with, especially like the people who are just hitting puberty for the first time and are realizing that it's not right for them. Yeah. My sort of like niche area of interest is eating disorders in trans people. Um, and a lot of that is to do with suppressing puberty when adolescence is happening. Um, so a study that I took part in a couple of years ago found that um, two thirds of all the thousand and something participants who were under 25 and were trans had at some point 
adapted their eating behaviors to try and change their body. Oh, wow. So starving or binging or purging or something along those lines. Right. A large portion of people had exercised to excess to try and change their bodies. And a lot of that was to do with, um, you know, the more thin someone is, the more androgynous they are seen as. Yeah. Um, right. And the more uh, wide you are and the like more body fat you have, the more feminine and curvy you can be seen as. So a lot of people binge eating to try and develop breast, breast tissue and a lot of people... Uh, restricting to try and prevent breast tissue mm-hmm. yeah. um, and you know things to do with like um, if you suppress your you know BMI to such a degree you might not actually go through puberty um, and you won't menstruate and things like that but um, at the time I was working with one of the hospitals here that treats young people experiencing eating disorders and they were seeing a disproportionate number of trans young people who were not getting better and were refusing care yeah. um, and it was because they did not want to develop anymore than they already had um, and did not have the access to puberty blockers the, the medications that they needed because they didn't have the parental support that is yeah. required to access them okay. um, so that's my possibly hopefully mm-hmm. next 10 years is doing studies on oh, these okay. things and trying to understand in more detail why the prevalence is so high that pretty much every study has found that you know it's the majority of trans yeah. people face issues related to eating mm-hmm. disorders in some way um, and that's not to say every single person and that like yeah it's, it's really mm-hmm. complicated um, mm-hmm. for sure but fascinating to me yeah to understand so, so you mentioned medications there like blockers and um, probably hormone therapy as well yeah. now are those things readily available under a pharmaceutical <laughs> benefits scheme or are they things that you have to pay for <laughs> extra uh, no they are very expensive um, so purity blockers are uh, something that are used for people like under 18 who are going through puberty and they just stop puberty from happening. Mm-hmm. They've been used for almost 100 years now, okay. um, not exclusively in trans people, but we've got studies of their safety in um, young girls who hit puberty too young. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've been used to stop puberty from hitting at like six years old okay. um, for many years without any side effects. They've been used not for quite as long in trans young people as a way of going, all right, Let's not give them hormones yet, but let's stop their puberty to see what happens and see if it makes them feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of statistics, it, it improves mental health, but it does not reduce dysphoria. So, okay. um, yeah. Th- does, it, does it just, w- when you stop taking that medication, do you then go through puberty? Yeah. Oh, okay, so, it, all right, so there's no real long-term side effects, I guess, then. It just yeah. kind of like delays it until you stop taking the medication. Yeah. And then, so yeah, it okay. basically just prevents, they're called gonadotrophin-releasing hormone agonists, um, mm-hmm. GNHRAs, and basically their job is just to stop puberty from happening and well, during the duration of the time you're on them. They're not necessarily pleasant. A lot of people have like hot flashes mm-hmm. and yeah. um, other issues that come with them, but for a lot of, for many young people, it reduces their distress, which is great. Um, the only known side effect that is major is that it can reduce bone density. Oh, okay. Um, okay. All right. Which then um, goes back up as soon as the medication is ceased. So you just got to keep up the calcium then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Keep up your calcium yeah. and look after your bones. Yeah. Um, and longitudinal studies of people who've then gone on to take like um, cross sex hormones, they call them, so estrogen or testosterone, yeah. their bone density goes right back up pretty quickly. Mm. Um, and it's just to do with the fact that their hormones are kind of nil for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there's it's <laughs> you know there's this idea that it's uh, going to cause infertility, but they've been used in small girls, cis girls for years and years without any known infertility. 
Um, it's, you know, cross-sex hormones that can create infertility. And yeah. that's why people sometimes talk mm. about, like, you know, fertility, uh, like preservation, cryopreservation, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Um, cross-sex hormones is a, it's a weird, I, weird concept, I guess, like yeah. cross-sex is strange sounding, but basically mm. like estrogen and testosterone, people take them in different forms. Um, puberty blockers, I don't know very well because I never went on them myself, but um, uh, in terms of like whether they're covered, I don't think, don't think so. Okay. You're required to see the children's hospital in Perth, no matter where in the state you live, you have to come to Perth Children's Hospital ah, in yes. Perth. Right. Classic. Um, yeah. And there's lots of appointments and um, psychiatrist visits and whatnot, and you have to have both parents consent. So if you have one parent who doesn't and one parent who does, that can be a real problem. Um, and yeah, my understanding is it's very expensive because okay. it's not covered. Um, when it comes to taking estrogen, it's the same drugs medications that um like women cis women who are in menopause will take to replace their estrogen yep. and so it is pbs covered but only because of that, that right. for that you need to be that so, age and going through that yeah. stage um, of life yeah we, they don't discriminate based on age in terms of like what the pbs does and doesn't cover for those it's mm -hmm. just like a a convenient thing that trans women are like oh yes i'm Totally going through menopause. Please give me my <laughs> benefit drugs, yeah. thank you. Yeah, um, yeah but testosterone okay. is not um, covered by PBS, which is a bummer because yeah. lots of trans masculine people take it, but mm. also lots of people who've had testicular cancer mm. and prostate cancer take yeah. it. Um, and they also have to pay full price. Okay. Yeah. It's not as cheap. So it's. Uh, Depending on which form you take, I've taken like many of the forms. They range from like 150 bucks a month to 30 bucks a month, mm -hmm. depending on which one it is. Um, there used to be a cheaper form, but the you know pharmaceutical Australian some sort of body stopped buying it from the U.S. and so now we've got to take a different kind. Right. Um, yeah. So it's mm. interesting, but um, the cost is quite exorbitant. And I guess if you think about it, so we're talking about. Um, people who find it very difficult to get a job, who are unlikely to have stable housing, who um, don't have really a strong source of income, who mm. are having to pay all that cost plus potentially very expensive surgical mm. costs. Mm -hmm. There's a big discrepancy between earning and expenditure for basic like sanity yeah. and well-being. And they're dealing with the prejudices that come with being trans and, you know, society's kind of prejudice. Yeah, and paying for the medication yeah. might come lesser down than yeah. other things. So something that you said there was that psychiatrists are heavily involved in that process. Yeah. So is this, by the medical profession, is this treated as a psychiatric issue primarily or a specialist doctors who are not necessarily psychiatrists, can they treat patients, you know, who can go with gender dysmorphia or...? Yeah, it's... Um, in Australia, there really doesn't seem to be consistency yet in terms of what the procedure is for accessing hormones. And that's part of the problem is that like there are guidelines, but no one really seems to know how to follow them. And it's at least in part because um, medical students are not taught this area really mm -hmm. at all. And if they are, it's brushed over. Right mm -hmm. now, the medical students in Perth get like an hour with me and that's it and I'm not a doctor with and I have no medical background mm -hmm. I'm just there to like give like a lived experience talk about how annoying it can be to try and access hormones and the difficulties of accessing doctors um, but uh, for 
people under 18, they're a lot more strict on who can and can't access things, and they want to make sure people are sure because of the controversy of them being a minor. Yeah. Um, so there is a lot more steps, and it takes a really long time to access any of the treatments um, that are available. Um, it used to require family court like mm -hmm. access as well. So even if both parents and doctors and everyone agreed, um, all the guardians were on board, uh, then the court, the family court, still needed to agree as well that this was in the best interest of the child. Yeah. Um, and I don't, to my knowledge, there's been like a, a precedent case now where it's not required for puberty blockers. I'm not sure if it's required for cross-sex hormones anymore mm -hmm. in this state because it varies state to state as well at the moment. Yes. Um, for adults accessing, accessing hormone replacement therapy, it really depends on which doctor you go to. Yeah. So in WA, um, most GPs that you go and talk to will be like, sorry, I don't do that. I don't know where to begin because I never was trained on this. Um, let me see if I can try and find someone who can. Mm -hmm. um, on our like list of GPs that prescribe hormone replacement therapy that we have in community, we probably have four or five doctors, only one of which is not in the Perth metro area. I think there's one up north and the rest are all here, mm -hmm. which means that lots of the young people that I work with who are in like Albany or Kununurra are driving to Perth for an appointment to get that first prescription and then are trying to find someone up north who will refill their prescription or down south. Um, but it's very tricky. Um, mm. The doctor that I saw who is fantastic um, does something called informed consent model, which is basically like how contraceptives are prescribed, where it's like you understand the risks associated with this. You are an adult who is able to make your own decisions. Cool, cool. They just assess that you're, you're capable of informed decision making. And then here you go. Here's your medication, right. which to someone outside of community can seem like really rash and like quick. Um, but you know, all the studies we have are that by the time someone accesses a doctor to ask for hormones and from when they first decide they want them is up to 10 years long. Oh, Usually wow, yeah. the average is 10 years between yeah. that. And so, you know, the GP I saw asked me, how long have you been thinking about this? And I said, oh, you know, a good 15 years probably. Mm -hmm. And she was like, cool, then you probably already know all of the side effects and you've done your research, but I have to tell you anyway, but right. you tell me what you know. Mm. Right. And I was like, well, here's all the things that are going to happen to me <laughs> and here's what could happen to me. And she was like, yes, now I'm going to redo the list because I have to. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, you already understand all this. Cool. Um, sounds like we're good and mm -hmm. um, it wasn't a, you need to go see a psychologist because you're crazy um, mm -hmm. it was a you know you I would recommend that you see a psychologist because you know coming out can be really hard help through and the process you might need additional support and your hormone levels are going to go a bit whack and it'll be like a bit emotional for you possibly so here's yeah. a psychologist in case you want it mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't a judgmental like you know you're you're gonna be crazy person yeah. um, and you need to see a psychologist because you're crazy mm -hmm. um, it was helpful for me to have that additional support because of all the fallout that happened in my life around family and friends and whatnot but it wasn't because I needed to see one to get the hormones you know and a lot of psychologists do have to have like here are my 10 sessions to confirm you're really trans now here's your doctor's letter to go get your hormones um, we're trying to move more towards that informed consent model that people who are adults can make decisions about what they want to do with their body. You can get a nose job without a psychologist to <laughs> confirm it. You can get a full bat body tattooing to without any anything. Yeah. You can have all the like 
issues in the world and still have all those things down but yeah hormones are permanent and will alter your body forever and it's like well actually a lot of other things will too but for some reason it's just us that have to manage this um but yeah it's it, it there is not very much consistency in who can see um who can give hormones and who can't and it's just a lack of like education for doctors and there doesn't seem to be like a training that you can go to after your degree in medicine to get more information on this so it becomes mm-hmm. very difficult for people who want to be helpful to be able to know where to start i guess yeah. and there's just a lot of fear around losing your license if you right. break ethics somehow mm-hmm. um that can get in the way yeah. um in terms of whether it's seen as a psychological illness or not anymore uh, originally like homosexuality was in the dsm as like yeah. a, an, a mental was, disorder yeah. um yeah. the psych the the dsm which is like the the psychology manual still currently has in the the disorders uh, body uh, gender dysphoria gender mm. dysphoria yeah. Yeah. yeah um but i'm pretty sure it's going to be removed in the dsm 6 so it's the okay. dsm oh, 5 right. on now yeah um mm-hmm. most people don't use the dsm anyway for diagnosis um mm. they use the icd which is the international yeah. diseases yeah. yeah the who version has mm. um gender stuff in the sexual health section mm-hmm. so it's um like they call it gender incongruence as in there's an incongruence between your sex and your gender they don't talk about needing distress as a requirement to access treatment because yeah. that's a big bone of contention that the dysphoria DSM diagnosis requires you to be distressed before you can get treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So if you know that you're trans and you're not distressed about it, then you need to become distressed first <laughs> um, or you can't access the care that you need. Right. Um, yeah. And so a lot of people who were like, you know, I'm, I'm okay with who I am and I just want my hormones had to like, have to sort of like fake being upset in order mm-hmm. to meet the criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, but the new ICD version just basically says, do you have a difference between your sex and gender? Do you want help? Cool, here you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in the sexual health section because it's not a mental health issue. It's not something wrong with someone's brain. Um, and it has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. So where's the best section for it? We'll put it in sexual health alongside everything to do with like um, identity and sexuality. And yeah, it's still not ideal to have it in there, um, but it's got to go somewhere, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so, so I think in summary that there's a huge amount of challenges for this group of people that live in our community um but i'd like your opinion on i guess some of the the positive changes that have happened i guess recently if there are any or some of the biggest positive things that you've experienced with the work that you do as well um i think it's we must be going in the right direction that we have so many people booking this workshop who are acknowledging that they're seeing a lot of trans young people and who want support to figure out how to better support them um and you know i've not been alive for that long i'm 24 (laughs) um, of which i've only been out of the closet for some of that time yeah um but you know we've seen some like incremental progress and i think my hope is that like um, the original gay rights movement which arguably started in the u.s with stonewall was sort of led by trans people and it was mostly gay men who got increased rights from that but that was before the internet and it was very slow progress over time and um i'm hoping that now we're seeing that sort of surgence that happened in the the 60s for gay rights now in the 2000s with trans rights Mm -hmm. and with the fact that we have internet and easy access to information in a way that we didn't have before 
we'll see faster progress and it will be sort of like hyperspeed towards good things. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe all this additional pushback is because people are realizing that we're gaining ground. That's my hope <laughs> is like, we need all these religious yeah. discrimination bills and bathroom bills because people are going, oh no, the trans people are getting rights. What are we going to mm -hmm. do about that? Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's hard to feel like it's going in the right direction when for me, I'm still interacting with a very large amount of, of young people who are really distressed. I'm going to a lot of funerals still mm. for trans young people who've died of suicide. Um, we've had our first murder of a trans person in Australia for the first time in a couple of years. Like mm -hmm. there's a list that comes out every year of all the trans people that are known that were murdered in the world. And there's like a memorial for them because their families often don't mourn them. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, usually that list Australia doesn't end up on it, which is lucky. Like we have had, you know, five or so years where there was no Australians. There was only sort of like New Zealand and nearby neighboring countries. Um, and you know, this will be the first year that we have like a couple of people on that list. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And that's always really disheartening. But the flip side of that is I guess that we've got this sort of global community that comes from being a part of a marginalized group mm. um, that we are not just interacting with our local, you know, WA or Perth community. We're reaching out and finding people everywhere. And we're mourning the deaths of people who are in Brazil who are like us, you right. know? And that's sad, but it also is a case of like, we're connected to a much bigger community than ourselves. Um, yeah, which is nice, I guess. Yeah. It's, uh, there's still lots of internal discrimination as well. Like the gay people don't always like the trans people and the gay people don't always like the gays and the gay and right. lesbian people don't like the bisexual people. And, um, there's just as much infighting sometimes as there yeah. is outside. There's lots of LGB people who think that like trans people need to go find their own group because they're going to, you know, undermine the rights of gay people who've come so far already. Right. Um, and that it might cause us to go backwards, but right. you know, it's, I guess it's just a remembering that sometimes, um, yeah, we've got to we've got to do a better different. job of looking after each other. And, yeah. yeah. Um, it's I guess my my takeaway message that I tell everyone at workshops and the same thing to people who are listening is just like my favorite quote is just like empathy is not endorsement. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. can completely vehemently disagree with who I am and the choices I've made to transition but you can still have empathy for the challenges I've faced and be kind to me and people like me um, and not kill us. Mm -hmm. um, right. And, you know, be nice to us without uh, somehow endorsing the people that we are, the choices that we've made in our lives. Yeah. Um, and I do the same thing day in and day out with, you know, I'm working with people who've sometimes committed heinous crimes um, mm -hmm. in the juvenile justice system. Um, and I don't agree with what they've done. Not, not to compare being trans to a heinous yeah, crime, yeah, yeah, to yeah. be clear. Um, <laughs> but I, I think some people do think that way, that we've committed yeah. a treasonous crime. Um, but I can be really kind to people who I know have done something really bad um, mm -hmm. or hurt someone else or killed somebody. Um, and for some people, this is a sin. Being trans is a sin on par, I've been told, with <laughs> rape and murder and all yeah. kinds of other things. Um, but you can still have compassion for someone who's different to you and yes. that's of course. not a problem you know it's okay yeah. to be okay with people who are different to you and I think mm. the biggest thing just to um, reiterate the difference is you're not hurting anyone else so. yeah it all comes down to consent yeah absolutely um, mm. the difference between you know people often go on a bit of a tangent at me about like 
um, marrying dogs because gay people can get married. And it's like, well, oh. a dog, uh, the difference is that two people who are adults who are both men or both women or both non-binary or whatever it might be, um, have the capacity to consent to, to sexual engagement, to getting married. They can both sign a piece of paper. That's cool. Uh, an animal, a child, all these other things that people kind of use as their arguments do not have the capacity to consent. Yeah. Me as an adult or a young person with the supportive parents has the capacity to consent to healthcare, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's, that's really where it comes from. You know, we have the capacity to make our own informed decisions about our bodies, about our lives, and about who we want to spend our romantic or sexual time with. Um, and I'm not going to tell anyone else what they can or can't do in terms of, <laughs> sure. as yeah. long as it's consensual, that's right. yeah. go have all the straight relationships that's, you yeah. want, you know? That's right. Um, yeah, people from all parts of society do things that we might disagree with, whether they're right. straight or gay or, or whatever. Know, whatever. But if yeah. you're not hurting anybody else in the process, then yeah. that's, I guess, you know, as someone who is a sexual health educator, my job is I don't shame anyone for what their preferences are and what they want to do. And yeah. some young people are into some very surprising things, sure. um, some very kinky things. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if they're being safe, if they are getting consent for that thing from the other people involved or person involved, yeah. then that is their Before own business to do yeah. what they want to do, you know? Yeah, yeah excellent. So uh, we're just about at the end. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say um, how enlightening it's been. And oh, I, yeah, I've learned I think, so much. <laughs> yeah, and I think the single biggest thing that's going to drive this this whole topic and debate and whatever forward and you know community understanding is education. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to acknowledge you know has, having someone like you who is able to articulate these things so clearly, um, it's really beneficial and you know Absolutely. it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you about. Yeah, it. I appreciate nice. you making the time today. Yeah, thank, thank you, and happy yeah. to help. I guess. Yeah, it's my and, pet project in life is to yeah. try and build understanding you know i think the majority of people are not trying to be hurtful mm -hmm. ever most people have really good intentions it's just like a lack of knowledge and awareness yeah. and if we can build that knowledge and awareness um, and give people the opportunity to ask questions that yes. are scary to ask or mm -hmm. they're afraid might be offensive then that's how we kind of like grow and learn from each other and if anyone listening does want to ask you further questions how can they get in touch with you good question um <laughs> so uh for Anything related to the Youth Educating Peers project, um, you can go to theyetproject.com.au or Google the Yet Project. Mm -hmm. um, we can put some links in yeah, the description we'll some links. Um, And then the Youth Pride Network, if you know LGBTIQA plus young people who would want to get involved in advocacy or access events, we've got an event coming up very soon that's like a VIP Q&A with a an LGBTIQA plus author, Benjamin Law, who's like That's, a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. Um, and all kinds of other events. Um, our Facebook page is the Youth Pride Network, which has more on it than our, our website, but mm -hmm. you can go to our website as well. Just Google Youth Pride Network. And uh, last question, when's your next D&D uh, event that you're holding? Oh, good <laughs> question. Um, well, our problem with our last one is that, you know, we had like 50 people say they were going to show up and usually only 10 people will show up. Yeah. So our venue was too small for the number of people who actually showed up. Uh, so what we're going to need to do is find a bigger venue and then host the next excellent. one. Excellent. All right. So we'll probably have a, a big town hall and there'll be like 100 <laughs> baby queers in a yeah. room playing D&D. Amazing. Yeah. Look out for that event when it comes. All right. Keep, Fantastic. A, keep an eye on our Facebook. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, guys. Yes, thank, thank you. very much. And so, uh, yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed listening. Yeah. Excellent. Cheers.
And that was our conversation with Kai Schweizer from the Youth Affairs Council of Western Australia. As we said in the episode, uh, we will put some links in the show notes where you can read a bit more about the sort of work Kai is involved with and where to contact him if you would like to find out more. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please feel free to email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat on Twitter. And we look forward to speaking to you on the next episode. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Craig Cumming.